U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. History Navy Podcast. I am Dale, and Stephen is still the XO and still very happy with the subject that we are covering. Ironclad Part 2! Yes. So you want to just jump right in? You want to get underway? Let's cast off. Alrighty. So we left off going around with the first battles of the Ironclads in the Civil War and the Lisa fleet battle. So now we're going to get into the armament and tactics that these things had. I thought we agreed ramming, even though I think it's a terrible idea. That's part of the tactics. <laughs> I'm scared to ask how long they were doing that when we get to that point. <laughs> we're going to be getting into it pretty quick. So as you can imagine, the adaptation of iron armor meant that the traditional navy armament of uh dozens and dozens of light cannons become useless because you know all their shots would just bounce off the hull it's like 1812 all over again huzzah her sides are really made of iron this time exactly so of course to penetrate said armor they had to develop and mount heavier and heavier guns. But there was a different view, and that was the ramming effect. Because they thought this was going to be the only way to bring down ironclads. And of course, increasing the size and weight of the guns also meant moving away from mounting them all on the sides of the ship for broadsides and towards turrets. Oh. So this is what introduced that, you know, now fairly standard situation. Yeah. So let's get into what you've been wanting to get into, and that's the ram craze. So from the 1860s to 1880s, again, many designers believed that the ram was a vital weapon in naval warfare because steam power freed the ships from the wind and you know the iron construction increased their structural integrity and the armor making them pretty much invulnerable to taking fire from cannons so they were like hmm ramming that's going to make a decisive blow so let's do that and of course, you know, the very little damage inflicted by the guns of the Monitor and Virginia at the Battle of Hampton Roads and the lucky success of the Austrian flagship, the SMS Ezerzog Fernandez Max, sinking the Italian Rida Italia. Say that ten times fast. Rida Italia. Rida Italia, Rida Italia, Rida Italia, but just stopping at three. <laughs> this gig, <laughs> this, this is what led to the ramming craze. So from the 70s to 80s, most British naval officers thought that all of their guns were just going to be replaced by rams. They were going to just take out all the guns and install lots of rams. So you, maybe so you can ram them forward and backwards and side to side. So, bumper boats or water demolition derby for keepsies. 
Yeah. Now, there was other voices of opinions that were completely ignored. And those were the guys that were trying to say, you do realize how many ships have been sunk by ramming, right? Not many. It's fun. It's cool. We get it. But just because it worked a few times does not mean it should become a commonly adapted tactic. Yeah. So, as you can imagine, with the Ram Revival, this had a significant change on naval tactics. Because, you know, from the 17th century, the most used tactic of naval warfare had been the line of battle. This is, you know, where fleets formed a long line and, you know, just started shooting broadside at each other. This tactic, of course, is totally unsuitable for ramming. So the ram throwback threw fleet tactics into disarray. Oh, I imagine fleet tactics started looking more like a rugby match. Yeah. So the question of how a ironclad fleet should deploy in battle to make the best use of the ram revolution, it really wasn't ever tested in battle. If it had been, the fights would have shown that the rams were only useful against ships that were already DIW, or dead in the water. So they still needed to be shot at to damage or disable components. Which is why it, the ram finally fell out of favor in the 1880s. It took them a decade to figure this crap out. Guys... Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going to interject with something real fast. And perhaps we're about to hit this. What about instead of a round piece of cast iron, we made it relatively uh, cone-shaped, so all that energy is directed into a very tiny point to penetrate the hull. And hell, we have exploding shells already. Why not have it set for a timer... You can do math relatively fast and have it set to detonate. Oh, heck, these things are heavy. Let's say 30 seconds after firing. I'm sure if you hit, it would have penetrated the hull by that point. Yeah. That's when they figured out that the same effect of ramming could be achieved with a torpedo, which is less vulnerable to quick-firing guns. Now... So you are absolutely correct. When you say torpedo, because the last time you said torpedo, you meant mine. Because apparently those two were interchangeable. This is an actual modern torpedo, right? No, <laughs> not yet. It, I mean, there's nothing here that's modern yet. Yeah, we're pretty much still talking about primitive naval mines. Okay. Now, naval guns. So the armament of the Iron Clans, you know... Because of how heavy they were, they tended to have small concentration of powerful guns. You know, they were trying to use these to penetrate the armor of enemy ships, you know, at a good range. And of course, the caliber and weight of the guns started to increase more and more to achieve, you know, better penetration of the enemy's hull throughout the entire ironclad era they were also 
grappling with the complexities of, you know, rifled versus smoothbore and breech loading versus muzzle loading. They were trying to figure out what is working best. For example, the HMS Warrior, a British ship, they carried a mixture of 110-pound, 7-inch breech-loading rifles. Holy crap. And they also carried a more traditional 68-pound smoothbore gun, or multiple guns. The Warrior actually showed the challenges of picking the right armament because the breech loaders that she had were intended to be the next generation heavy armament of the Royal Navy, but they were like, this was poorly designed. We're going to not use them. Well, I weren't breech loaders like kind of adopted as the standard after the kinks were worked out? After the kinks were worked out. We're not there okay. yet. The kinks okay. are still there. <laughs> so pretty much th- their, their response was, yeah, we really appreciate the giant gun, but uh, we don't appreciate being the uh, testing department. So it looks nice. Thanks. But it's not working. So, <laughs> you know, push overboard. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, breech loading guns, they do have advantages. They can be reloaded without moving the gun, which, you know is very, very convenient because when you're moving the gun and doing, you know, the rim loading or the muzzle loading, it takes time to do everything like that. With the breech, you just open the breech, shove everything in and close the breech. (laughs) (laughs) And it also saved time if the gun needed to be re-aimed. They're also lighter than their equivalent smoothbore cousins. And these all had rifling, so they were more accurate as well. I mean, I kind of want to ask what the Royal Navy got wrong with this initial, you know, 116-pound breech-loading monster, but if it was one of the first generations, I'm sure it's stuff that hindsight being 2020, we'd look at and be like, what the hell were you thinking? Well... It's because of problems of sealing the breach. Oh. You know, yeah. I mean, all these guns are powered by explosives. Yeah, and if that breach isn't sealed completely, uh, I wouldn't want to be close to the gun if it isn't a complete seal. Yeah. So, you know, as the explosion propels the shot out of the front of the gun, it also puts a lot of stress on the gun barrel. So if this breach is not entirely secure, especially since the breach is ha- is what experiences the most forces and stress in the entire gun, well, the breach will break, which in turns, you know, reduces the muzzle velocity, so it makes it not very accurate or powerful. Yeah, instead of leaving the barrel, you know, probably going something akin to 500 to 700 meters per second. It's probably leaving at maybe two or 300. Yes. And what about that crew that's right by that? Ah, they're expendable. We can replace them. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's why the gunnery crew hates you. No, 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 no. I love our gunnery crew. I'm talking, this This is 19th century Royal Navy. We went over this, press ganging, you know. 
yeah. visit somebody on a pub crawl, That's... and then they wake up, you know, enlisted in the Royal Navy. Instead of, you know, just taking care of your people. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, the first gun that on the Warrior suffered from all of these problems. And they're not able to penetrate the four and a half inches of armor of a French ship. There was also times when the screw which closed the breach just, you know, when the the gun was fired, the screw backwards. What? And, yep, yeah, and now the gun's disabled. So this made the British pretty much just equip their ships with muzzle-loading guns of bigger and bigger breaches and pound shot velocities and stuff until the 80s. There was a brief and when there was a 100-pounder, which was a 9.5-inch smoothbore, the Somerset gun, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I feel like I've heard of it, but I just can't recall anything aside from, I feel like I've heard of it. It weighed 6.5 tons, and it was rifled, and, you know, this, they had, it, this one had a very brief service life because they were like we still need to get this bigger and bigger and bigger it, it was the naval so, equivalent of uh that world war ii train born artillery piece that i cannot recall the name of yes. right now we'll call it big bertha <laughs> so they increased the tonnage they had 12 ton gun then a 25 ton gun and then a 38 ton gun and then, you know, they capped it out at 81 tons. Okay, this is getting... Okay. What was the size of the shot being fired from an 81-ton gun? It capped out to about a 16-incher. What the heck? That is the size of the modern battleship when they were still in service. How much did that round weigh? This was a muzzle loader, right? You had to have guys team lifting these rounds and stuffing it like ye olden cannonball because it was ye olden cannonball more or less yeah these were probably with a 16 inch shell they were probably about a ton <laughs> okay yeah yeah that thing over there i don't want to see it anymore throw the tub at it but i mean the the brits they still, even with these muzzle loaders, had superior performance in both range and rate of fire than the French and Prussian breech loaders. Okay, well... Because they were still having the problems that the British found and said, you know what, we're done with that. We'll, we'll let someone else iron out the kinks, we'll, we'll stick to all reliable. So, from about 75 and then you know onwards, the balance started to change between breach and muzzle loading. There was a Captain DeBange who invented a method of reliably sealing a breach, which was adopted by the French in 73. And, you know, because of the growing size of the naval guns, which we just talked about, it made muzzle loading harder and more complicated. <laughs> because eventually they're going to get to a size where... 
there's no way they're going to be able to reload the dang... Yeah. I mean, at this point, with the size and, you know, never mind the weight, you're probably talking a few minutes between salvos. I mean, they had to invent a complicated hydraulic system to reload these bigger guns. You know, because they didn't want to expose their crew to enemy fire outside of the turret. So, you remember that uh, 81-ton, 16-inch gun? I do. Big Bertha. Yeah. This was on the HMS Inflexible. And it could only fire once every 11 minutes. Holy crap! Don't miss! <laughs> there was a 100-ton, 17.2-inch gun. This was on the Duvillo. And they only fired once every 15 minutes. <laughs> so instead of ringing the bell for the hour, gentlemen, fire around. At at every time you fire around, that 15 minutes have passed. So the switch in the Royal Navy between breech loaders and muzzle loaders was finally done in 1879. And of course, that's when they were like, we love this thing. So much less complicated. There was a accident that almost made them rethink their position again. Because there was a huge explosion on board the HMS Thunderer. Because it was double loaded. Oh! Normally this mistake can only happen on muzzle loading guns. But apparently some idiot did it on the breech loader. Double loaded the thing and blew it up. So he gets half rations for a week for that. More than likely he died. <laughs> so, of course, you know, they're increasing the caliber and weight of these guns. So it, of course, becomes slower to load. There's another thing. The bigger the gun, the greater the stress on the hull. And the stability of the ship is, is whacked out. So the gun size peaked in the 80s with some of the heaviest calibers ever used at sea. They didn't do this on the land. This was all on sea. The land guys were like, the army was like, you know what, we're good with what we got. At least until, you know, Big Bertha in World War II. Wow. The HMS Benbow carried two 16.25-inch breech-loading guns, each weighing in at 110 tons. What the heck? This double-turreted ship would have the largest guns mounted on a British ship until the 18-inch gun on the HMS Furious, which was in 1917. You know, I know here in the Navy, we like to think bigger is always better. At a certain point, Bigger becomes impractical. Now, the Italians would have the biggest that they fitted as a 17.72-inch gun until that 18-incher in 1917 came around. And then, of course, the Yamamoto in World War II comes in at 18.1 inches. They had to outdo the British by 0.1 inch. Hey, hey, that 0.1 inch is just because of principle. So one of the things that became more realized 
was that the range and hitting power far exceeded just accuracy. Especially, you know, at sea where there's pitch and roll that uh, affects it. So this, you know, will negate the advantage of rifling. So Americans, they actually preferred smoothbore and, you know, big, big smoothbores because the round shot could skip along the surface of the water. Oh my, so we preferred the old way, not because we're traditionalist, but because we're such mad lads. We're like, hey, hey, Captain, how much you want to bet I can get three skips before I hit the ship? Mm, no, no more than mm -hmm. two. Ten pounds? I mean, dollars, we're, not, we're Americans, not British. <laughs> yeah, so while everybody else is using rifling with the shell that goes with it, the pointy shell, and they're lobbing things not very accurately, the Americans are like, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> Crew, we will settle this in the only way that gentlemen can in their time of war. Skipping cannonballs. Yeah. So they learn that the range, or so they learn that the effective combat ranges were pretty much comparable to those when, you know, everything was used with sailing ships. But a boat can now be smashed to pieces in just a couple shots instead of, you know, 40, 50, 60 shots that a ship could take beforehand. Or even more. And I'm sure it doesn't take, you know, 11 to 15 minutes to reload. Yeah. And, of course, smoke and, you know, just the normal chaos added to all these problems that they're having. Which means that most naval engagements were still fought at ranges that were, you know... Not where you could easily ram, but, you know, also well below the maximum range of their guns. So there was another method of increasing the firepower of these guns. And that was to mess with the propellant. Okay. So most of these, yeah, most of these early ironclads used black powder, which, you know, at, it's a rapidly expanding combustion that black powder puts out. So, you know, shorter barrels. Because they didn't want the barrels to slow down the projectile. But that also increased stress as well. Because of the rapidly expanding, you got all that stress on the back end of that gun. So they decided they were going to put the powder into pellets. Which allows for a slower, more controlled explosion. Which allowed them to increase the barrel length. Isn't chemistry fun, kids? Then they took another step, which was a... They went from black powder to brown powder. So it again slowed the combustion even more. This put less stress on the barrel, which actually increased the service life of a gun. Can't say I've ever heard of brown powder. Like, is there, aside from a longer burn time, it sounds like? An ingredient difference, or...? This is, uh, prismatic powder. It's, it's similar to black powder, but it is chemically formulated and hydraulically formed 
to a specific grain shape to provide a slower burn. Oh, okay. And because of this process, the powder didn't look black anymore. It looked more brown or cocoa powder. So to call it quick and dirty, black powder is organic. You know, like it's all ingredients that can be found in nature combined in such a way to cause the desired effect. Brown powder is an artificially created black powder equivalent. Yes, that's a good way to get in there without, you know, bringing out chart. Yeah, the EXO the got a passing grade in chemistry. He finds the subject fascinating, but it is not his expertise. C's get degrees, uh, folks. So, then comes smokeless powder. This is based on nitroglycerin and nitrocellulose, and this was invented by the French. Aren't those ingredients in dynamite? Yes, nitroglycerin is definitely in dynamite, and it's actually explosive by itself. Very, very volatile and fragile explosive. Hence why I'm wondering what inspired the French to think this was a good propellant for rounds? Probably because when they put in the nitrocellulose, it stabilized the nitroglycerin. Okay. But I'm not a chemist, so... Tune in to the U.S. Chemistry History Podcast to find out more. At a certain point, we're going to have to make one of the spinoff shows. You you realize that. Maybe. Maybe not. We'll find, <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> but this new smokeless powder, it allowed for even more smaller charges and longer barrels. So the battleships of the... Well, so the pre-Dreadnought battleships of the 1890s, they pretty much had a smaller caliber weapon compared to most of the ships in the 1880s. Most often they had 12-inch guns. But, you know, because of the powder changing, they made the gun happy by growing the barrels longer and longer. So anybody who says size doesn't matter is uh, lying to themselves, is what I'm hearing. Yes. Of course, you know, with all these other changes, the projectiles also had to be changed and invented. At first, they thought that the best projectile to go through that armor was just solid cast iron. Ye old cannonball. And then later they were like, no, we need chilled iron. Chilled iron. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm not caught up on the uh, U.S. Smithing History podcast. The heck is chilled iron? It is a way to cast iron instead of doing it the way they normally did, which was the way they did it. <laughs> <laughs> They would use geometry of the molding cavity that they used to make the mold, which prevented directional solidification. This would be a harder, more solid cast than with the regular cast iron. See, boys and girls, science and math is really cool. And then, of course, eventually the armor-piercing shell was developed. And, of course, this is pretty much what you would come to expect in modern times. So, 
now we get to the positioning of all of the armament. So the first British, French, and Russian ironclads. Because, you know, they had a long history of designing warships. So they put their weapons in a single line along the sides. And, you know, logically, these were broadside ironclads. Yeah, I mean, it's been working so far. Now, because of their armor being so heavy, they could only carry a single row of guns along the main deck on each side, rather than, you know, a row on each deck like the wooden variant. Now, the advantage of this design is that they were able to engage more than one enemy at a time, and that the rigging did not impede their fire. Because, you know, turret, it transverses, the rigging can get in the way of the turret. Of course, there was also disadvantages, which, you know, became more and more serious as technology developed. The heavier guns that they needed to penetrate the thicker and thicker armor that boats were being built with meant that they could only take fewer and fewer guns. Right. And of course, when they adopted ramming for a decade, this meant that they needed fire all around their boat. Mm -hmm. You need a bow chaser, you need a stern just to help dissuade people from going up your rear. So the ramming tactic made the broadside designs go away and brought the turret designs to the forefront. So there are two main designs that were all a alternative to the broadside. In one of them, the guns were placed in a armored casement amidships. This was called the box battery or center battery. And in the other, the guns would be placed on a rotating platform to, you know, give them the broad field of fire. This was the turret. So, quick question. Back in ye olden days of the 1860s, these turrets... Obviously, nowadays, we have electronics and machinery to rotate turrets and get them where we want. This was all manual, right? Like, we're talking teams yes. of guys, you know, pushing and cranking to adjust elevation. Yes. Yeah, everything's done by hand. <laughs> so, you know, cannon gun crews before this, two to three guys... Do we know what the average size of a gun crew was before we got to comically large sizes of, like, you know, 11-ton gun, 16-ton gun? I'm not sure how big the gun crew itself would be. The crew size of these boats ranges around 300 men. So, probably a third, if I have to estimate or guesstimate. My goodness. So the center battery was, you know, a simple design. And during the 60s and 70s was the most popular design. Concentrating the guns midships meant that the ship could be shorter and it was also more handier than the broadside type. So the turret was first used in naval combat with the... USS Monitor in 1862. We do love to play with our and toys here in the States. Yes. 
and it was actually designed by the Swedes. Yeah. Guy named John Erickson. Thank you, Mr. Erickson, for allowing us to blow each other up better. I'm very happy to do so. You're welcome. All right. Hey, I didn't know your Ouija board started speaking. That's very cool. Oh, yeah, no, uh, new feature. I, I upgraded after you uh, locked mine in the closet. Well, I mean, I had to. You were asking for it. Now, the Brits, they also had a designer who made a turret. And this was put on the HMS Trusty because they wanted to trust that it would work. So the Swedes version, this turret turned on a central spindle and the British version on a ring of bearings. Turrets, of course, they offer the maximum arc of fire from their guns. But of course, there were significant problems. The arc of fire of a turret would be limited by the masts and rigging of the ships. Okay, this is an ironclad. What do you need mast and rigging for? Backup propulsion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. New tech. They're a little hesitant to fully embrace it. The second problem was that, you know, of course, these things were very, very heavy. So the Swedes were able to offer the heaviest possible gun turret by deliberately designing a ship with very low freeboard. So this saved the weight from having a high broadside above the waterline and diverted the actual guns and armor. Now, the lower freeboard also meant that the smaller hull and that also meant smaller coal storage. So the range of the vessel wasn't very good. So they try to compromise the two extremes of the British and Swedish designs. And this was called Squaring the Circle. This was designed by Captain Cowper Phillips Coles. And it was made into the HMS Captain. <laughs> Named after the guy who invented this Squaring Circle turret? I think Captain is his title, not his name. So this was a very dangerously low freeboard turret ship, which carried a full rig of sails. And it was launched in 1870 and pretty much almost immediately capsized. She had a half-sister, the HMS Monarch, and she was restricted from firing her turrets only to the port and starboard beams. They were afraid with stability issues with her as well. And then the third ship was the HMS Inflexible. They had two turrets on either side of the, the center line, which allowed them to fire both fore, aft, and broadside. Oh, very nice. Yes. Now, we can only hope that this was a better design ship and didn't go down with like the first one did immediately, or restricted her fire like the second one. Now, the French, they had a lighter alternative to the turret that they liked, which was the barbette. These were armored towers that were fixed to the deck and held a gun on a turntable. Hmm. The crew was sheltered from direct fire, but of course they were 
vulnerable to plunging fire. Like from, you know, shore emplacements. Right. This was lighter than a turret, which means that they needed less machinery and no roof armor. But some ended up having all of their armor removed because they were like, still too heavy. So that brings us to torpedoes. The This age saw the development of torpedoes as naval weapons, which of course helped complicate the design and tactics of the ironclads. The first ones were static mines, which were used extensively in the Civil War, the American Civil War, but they also developed the spar torpedo in this day of age. And what's the spar torpedo? This is an explosive charge pushed against the hull of a warship by a small boat. Usually it's, uh, they put like a long, very long pole on the front of the boat, lash it down and put the explosive charge on the end of that. And then ram right into a boat. You know, you could just say it's boat jousting. It's boat jousting, only, but only one boat's participating in the joust. The other one's trying to dodge it. Or shoot the men inside the boat. Red Rover, Red Rover, send over, oh god, anybody but that boat, please. <laughs> so this was actually marked the first time that a large warship faced a serious threat from a rowboat. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, because of the inefficiency and inaccuracy of shell fire against small targets from these big ships, the threat of this spar torpedo was taken very seriously. So the U.S. decided, you know what? We're going to take four of our monitors. We're going to take the turrets off of them. We're going to take a big spar torpedo and put it on the front. They never saw action. Oh, there was a proposal towards a torpedo called the Harvey. This involved a explosive on a line or a outrigger. And this was to detour a ship from ramming into them or to make a torpedo attack by a boat less suicidal. Yeah. And then in 1868, the self Whitehead torpedo was invented. And deployed two years later. This torpedo formed part of the armament of the ironclads, like the HMS Inflexible, in the 1880s. The ironclads' vulnerability to the torpedo was a very huge critique to naval thought. Because you put enough armor on the boat to prevent it from gunfire... You make it slow to be caught by torpedoes. So what was their uh, proposed way to keep them from getting torpedoed? Everything we've described. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. I mean, it's just an arms race now, buddy. Oh, yeah, because uh, those we're always go well. So we're actually going to leave it here. This is going to be a three-parter because that took... Quite a lot longer than I thought it was going to. Maybe, I don't know, maybe even a four-parter. I don't We still going through the we still gotta go through the construction 
the propulsion and then get into the different fleets. And then, you know, of course, the end of the Ironclad. And then back to the Civil War. Yeah, then we're going back to the Civil War. So, Stephen, are you enjoying your Ironclad episodes? <laughs> uh, we went in expecting one episode, and now I'm hearing it might be a four-parter. So, uh, you know, I, I think the audience is going to need some subtitles. Like, you know, you, it can't just be, you know... Ironclad and then Ironclad 2, you know, this is Ironclad 3, The Reckoning, Ironclad 4, you know, up close and personal, Ironclad 5, ramming speed, I don't know, we'll have the marketing team talk about it, we'll get some trailers going, I'm imagining a whole, you know, cinematic universe, Marvel's got nothing on this. You're also imagining that we have a production staff that rivals Marvel, but we don't. Not with that mindset. It's just me and you. All right, buddy. So, anything you would like to add before we pull back into port? Um. Well, the the gun that I cannot remember the name of was named Gustav. Big Bertha. We like that one though. Both German. Um. We have a Discord channel now, which you can find that in the show notes. There you go. Off that one easy for you. <laughs> and. In an effort to avoid embarrassing myself, I will simply say you can always reach out to us with email or via Twitter, and those links can also be found in the show notes. But for our audience members who can't read, what would they be? Well, my first question would be, how do you find us if you can't read? Pretty picture. The podcast logo. It is a wonderful podcast logo. All right, well, you can reach out to us using Twitter at USNHistoryPod. You can reach out to us with Gmail, I should say email, using usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, what's so hard and embarrassing about that? The last three episodes. You can also visit the ship store. Oh, we do have a ship store. I always forget about that. I always, I, I forgot that it, we were worried about it sinking, but it wasn't actually sunk. No, we just had to redact the podcast logo a little bit. All right, well, that's going to be it for us. Thank you for joining us. Oh, and if you could, leave a review for us. We don't pay to get, you know, to advertise this show. So word of mouth and reviews help us immensely. So if you could do that, please do. Yes, the YouTube algorithm may be unforgiving, but so is the podcast algorithm. I think it's worse on the podcast side. You're probably right. And with that... All right. We wish you fair winds and following seas, folks. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. <laughs>